0: Imagine, if you will, you come home after a long, hard, stressful day at work. You walk up to a machine on your wall that looks a little bit like a clock, except that it has a face on it, like, like a face face. It's digitized. It's, it's a dot matrix display. You walk up to it, and you look into this face. And it studies you for a second, and you hear gears spinning and motors whirring, and and a little arm starts to move. Then all of a sudden, it begins to play music, music that matches your mood, and you feel better. This imagined scenario will soon become a reality thanks to an emotional radio called SOLO. It's created by the design and innovation company Uniform. How does this thing work? Well, according to uh, Adam Adrian Lacey's uh, article for the BBC, when you approach it, the pictogram shows a neutral expression, but it takes a photo of your face, and a rod or antenna cranks to life, and the LCD display indicates that it's thinking. Uniform's senior creative technologist, Mike Shorter, says that this process involves, quote, Analyzing different features of your face and deciding how happy or sad or angry you are, and then it begins to play music to reflect your mood. Watch. <laughs> Pretty cool, huh? First, the song begins to play uh, Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. I didn't know the next one. Um, it's amazing to me. We live in an age of technological wonders, all of which are focused on making our lives better, making us happier, making us more content. But like Ariel and The Little Mermaid, even though we have gadgets and gizmos aplenty, who's-its and what's-its galore, it's still not enough to give us real peace. And I think it might just be making things worse. This past winter, Sarah Fader, a 37-year-old social media consultant in Brooklyn who has a diagnosable condition called generalized anxiety disorder, sent a text message to a friend in Oregon about Sarah's upcoming visit. But when she did not get a quick response from her friend, She posted on Twitter to her 16,000-plus followers, I don't hear from my friend for a day. My thought, they don't want to be my friend anymore. Hashtag, this is what anxiety feels like. Thousands of people were soon offering up their own examples of this same hashtag. Some were retweeted more than 1,000 times. You might say she struck a nerve. She writes this. In an interview, she said, If you're a human being living in 2017, and you're not anxious, there's something wrong with you. Now the irony of her tweet is very deep because, (laughs) this is true, she's also the author of an article entitled, quote, Social Media Obsession and Anxiety for the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. (laughs) This is real, you can't make this up. I'm sure their meetings are aghast. Listen, I can tell you with 100% certainty, this is not what God wants for you. She says if you're if you're living in 2017 and you're not anxious, there's something wrong with you, I would say. And I think scripture would say, if you're living in 2017 and you're not anxious, there's something right with you. We live in an age of technological wonders. You realize most of you carry in your pockets or in my case on my wrist more technology than we sent to the moon. And yet despite all our technology that's designed to make us happy and to make life easier, we can still lack real peace. And the tragedy is this is completely unnecessary because Jesus wants you to have the same peace that he himself experiences eternally. And our text for today We'll show us how. If you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps, open them to Isaiah 26. We read a portion of it earlier. We're gonna look at the whole chapter today. This text is written somewhere between 750 and 725 BC, roughly 250 years after the nation of Israel is, is split into two countries: the northern kingdom of Judah, or the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The community to which this is addressed is the southern nation. Isaiah is warning the people of Judah that God is going to send judgment on them and the Assyrian army is right at the edge of the kingdom basically destroying the north. They're right there and Isaiah is saying, "Listen, if you guys don't repent, it's going to happen to us too." And they did for a while, and God spared them for a while. But 150 years later, God sent the Babylonians to judge the southern kingdom. Isaiah writes to to these people who who live in a time of anxiety and fear and oppression and injustice. Can you imagine the conversation in every single home in the southern kingdom of Judah? The dinner table conversation. Mom, are the Assyrians coming today? I don't know, hon. We're praying really hard. Dad, are we going to have to leave? I don't want to leave. I like my school. I don't know, son. We're just going to trust God. See what happens. Anxiety, fear, oppression, injustice, war, death, pain, all those things dominated the people of Isaiah's day. And he's writing, he's warning them. And in the midst of this warning, this lengthy cycle, multiple chapters in the book... God's going to judge the nations. God's justice will come true. (laughs) There's a pause. There's a brief pause. And Isaiah sings a song. He sings a praise song. A song describing how God wants to bring peace and wholeness and healing to his people. In the midst of all this anxiety, God says, I have peace for you. I want to look at this passage and then kind of frame our discussion around it. As we read this, I want you to look for how God wants to bring peace into Israel's life and how He's going to bring peace into your life too. Let's look at this together. Isaiah 26, verse 1. In that day, now, whenever you're reading prophetic literature, especially the Old Testament, and you see that phrase, you need to perk up. In that day is the day of God's decisive action. Now, sometimes it means the day he's going to send the Messiah. Sometimes it means the day of final judgment. Sometimes, apparently from the text, it's kind of both. <laughs> and like, well, which one is it? You just got to wait and see. Sometimes, in that day, it's God's day of final judgment. Okay, or the day of the Messiah, or maybe both. It, it, but it's God's doing something. God's at work. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. So here's the song. We have a strong city, and you'd think, oh, Jerusalem. No. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter the nation that keeps faith. They keep the covenant. You, will, you God, you will keep in perfect peace, we're going to come back to this, those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord, and if you're reading a paper Bible, well, you can see there, it's all caps. Whenever you see that in the Bible, it's, it's designating in Hebrew that that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. They're appealing to the covenant here. God keeps his promises. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord, the Lord himself. You get the emphasis there. God keeps his promises. Is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. They're talking about Israel's enemies there. He levels it to the ground and casts it to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of the oppressed. The footsteps of the poor. He's talking about this divine reversal that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount as well. The path of the righteous is level. You, the upright one, that's the only place in the whole Bible that title is used of God. And what it means is that God is true. He's, he's straight in the sense of being like in carpentry. It's, it's true. It's square. It's straight. That's what this means. That there's an appeal to God's ethical perfection. You, the upright one, make the way of the righteous smooth. See how that works? It's smooth. It's straight. It's clean. He's saying because God is, he can make you that way. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desires of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. That's Hebrew parallelism. Night, morning, longing, yearning. It's that idea where it's it's poetic. When your judgment comes upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. But when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. Lord, your hand is lifted high, and it's lifted high in judgment. He's about to smite. But they don't see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Now look at this. Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us. And so you go, well, is he, is he talking about other gods? Like Israel sometimes struggled with that, especially in the northern kingdom, of worshiping Baal or Ashtoreth or Kamosh or all these other horrible, evil gods. Is he talking about that or is he talking about other political entities? Keep going. He says, but your name alone do we honor. They are now dead. Okay, so it's other political entities. They live no more. Their spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin, and you wiped out all memory of them. You have enlarged the nation, Lord. You have enlarged the nation. Now, the nation of, of Judah and really Israel, at its largest, was under King Solomon. It was humongous. Um, At this point, not so much, but there was kind of a renaissance there that happened in Isaiah's time. So it had shrunk, and it's expanding again, not to the fullest limits that it ever was, but it's getting bigger. You've gained glory for yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. Lord, they came to you in their distress when you disciplined them. They could barely whisper a prayer. (laughs) This is a really interesting image. Isaiah was probably young when he writes this. He had kids, we know that. So I think that's where he's drawing this image. As a pregnant woman about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so we were in your presence, Lord. We were with child. We writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. <laughs> you hear what he's saying? They went through all the struggle and pain and trial of labor, which I've heard is really bad. <laughs> being honest, right? It's, it's bad. But at the end, you get a baby. Yay! That's great. Can you imagine going through that, ladies? And then at the end, nothing. That's what he's saying. That's how we were. All this trouble, all this trial and waiting and pain and anxiety, and then nothing. We have not brought salvation to the earth. Look at this at the end of verse 18. And the people of the world have not come to life. God put Israel in the center of the ancient world so that the knowledge of God could go out into all the nations. People go, well, God didn't care about all those. What about all the people who died before Jesus? God put Israel in the middle of the ancient world so that the whole world could know every major trade route connected to Israel. They had a mission. Spread the knowledge of God through the entire ancient world. They blew it. They didn't do it. That's what he's saying here. Now look at this, verse 19. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. That's resurrection in the Old Testament, folks. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. There's this great, this song ends on hope, but there's a a discordant ending. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you Hide yourselves for a little while until His wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of His dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. Now let me frame this text. What Isaiah is promising his people is that in a world of anxiety and fear and oppression and injustice, you know, like ours, is that God alone can give them true peace. The word that the Hebrew people used for that is the Hebrew word shalom, it's up there, <laughs> shalom. Okay, it, it, it's, it, it's this amazing word, I want to talk about it here in a little bit, but, but first of all, just I want to thank you for being here, um, you know, we kind of declared this no excuses Sunday and I can see that you took that to heart and so I'm, I'm grateful for that, uh, If you're new here at Chapel Rock, like if you saw the sign, you're like, hey, that sounds interesting, and you're here, I'd love to meet you when we're done. I'll be down front, please come, say hi. If you're joining us online, again, thanks for logging in. Fill out your online connection card. John asked you guys to do yours uh, here earlier. Uh, and We'd we'd love to be able to pray for you tomorrow morning and and whatever needs um, you have. Real quick, let's just get this out of the way. By show of hands, rooting for the Patriots. Okay, rooting for the Rams. Everybody, the rest of the country. Okay, so make that, you know, okay. Uh, At the end of tonight, someone is not going to have peace, okay? We just, they're not going to have it. Uh, Maybe not, no no shalom in their home. Uh, We'll see. Um, We're starting a new sermon series today called Shalom in the Home. And and shalom is a Hebrew word. It normally gets translated peace, but it's way more comprehensive than that. It's way bigger than that. We tend to think of peace as the absence of conflict or just like everybody's chilled out and it's 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 way more than that it's pretty similar to the way we use the word wholeness here at chapel rock it, what this means is that god that your relationships with god and yourself and your family and friends and your community are all right that they're all good and they're the way they should be and that they're flourishing and that people are growing every day in the sense that yeah yeah i'm i'm good i'm in a good place This word was used 232 times in the Old Testament. And I believe that when when Jesus comes into your life, he can make your home an outpost of the kingdom from which his wholeness can radiate out into the whole community. You see, that's our big idea this morning. Peace in the home starts by having peace with yourself, which only comes through the work of Jesus in you and a life lived for him. If you want to have peace in your home, you got to start by having peace with yourself. Because if you are full of conflict, and you are full of strife, and your life is a wellspring of bleh, you're not going to have it in your house, folks. It starts with you. It starts with you having peace in your life. So how does that happen? Well, I think Isaiah's praise song in this middle of so much strife actually tells us two vital things that we must do to have peace. Here's the first one. Number one, trust in the work of God. Trust in the work of God. Verse three is so important to understanding this passage. Look at it again with me. Isaiah 26, verse three. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Now, the NIV's translation of perfect peace is translating the Hebrew original, which is literally it's the same word twice. Shalom, shalom. It, 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 it's used twice. Now, every other major English translation does this. New American Standard, English Standard, New Living, you know, King James. Perfect peace. The, the, the idea here is that by using this word twice, he's saying, This is peace as it should be. That God wants to give this to you. God wants you to have this. So how does he do that? Well, this real shalom, this perfect peace, this wholeness, how does he give that to us? The next line, it comes because the people trust in him. It comes when you trust in the Lord forever, as verse 4 says. Isaiah is telling Israel, I'm telling you this morning, if you want to have peace with yourself, you can't put your trust in yourself. I'm going to say that again. If you want to have peace with yourself, you can't put your trust in yourself. Now, some of you out there are going, whoa, 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 preacher, what are you talking about? Well, let me ask you this question. Have you ever done something you said you wouldn't do? Have you ever let yourself down? You can't even solve your own problems. Why do you trust yourself? If you want to have peace with yourself, you can't put your trust in yourself. You've got to put your trust in something bigger than you, someone greater than you. When you trust in the work of God, he can give you peace. See, in the next seven verses, Isaiah lays out what God's work is. God's work is to humble the proud, to set forth the proper way to live for the righteous, to give himself fully to those who long for him, and ultimately to judge the unrighteous which is basically what Jesus came to do. (laughs) That's what Jesus did. And we see Isaiah's description here of the restoration of national Israel as a symbol of what God does in each one of us. Isaiah would have thought of this as being literally fulfilled, and it may have been, but it's also symbolically fulfilled in Jesus as he works to bring shalom into your life, this, this wholeness as we trust in him. Now, I've been using this word trust. Let me define what I mean. Because I want to make sure we're all on the same page, you right? Because sometimes people use a word and we mean different stuff. Let's talk about what trust means. Trust equals belief plus dependence. In the Bible, that's what the word trust means. Trust equals belief plus dependence. In order to put your trust in the work of God, you need to believe in Jesus. Now, what that means is to agree in your mind that he is who he said he is, the Son of God, And that he did what the Bible says he did. Born of a virgin, live a perfect sinless life, die on the cross in our place for our sin, be resurrected on the third day, ascend into glory to to be with the Father and one day to come back and judge the living and the dead. That's what you, in order to really begin this journey of having peace in your life, you're not gonna have peace until you accept that as true. You need to believe that those things are true, okay? But it's more than that. You also need to depend on Jesus. If trust is to belief plus dependence, you need to depend on Jesus. True biblical faith or trust is not just mental assent. It is that you have to believe these things in your mind, but it's also total dependence. Let me illustrate this. Belief is believing that this stool will support my weight. Doing the math, you know. I think it will trust, independence is when I sit on it. And there are a lot of people who get this out of whack and they think that all they need to do is mentally just go, okay, yeah, that's true. And they don't need to actually depend on God. That he, there is no plan B. <laughs> Let me give you a few biblical, biblical examples to explain what I mean. There are a lot of people who say they believe in the Lord, but they don't depend on him to be enough for them. When it comes to their sexual appetites or their financial needs or their political preferences, yeah, I'm going to go there. So when people are tempted sexually, they don't depend on Jesus for the power to resist that temptation to be enough for them, they just give in. They might believe, they don't depend. When they're tempted financially, they don't depend on Jesus to provide for them and they keep back more of what of theirs that they should. You know, can you say Ananias and Sapphira? Acts five. When they're tempted to seek a political solution for a spiritual problem, they don't depend on Jesus to change people's hearts. They want to force their ideology on people through legislation. Because of all that, we have no peace. We don't have shalom in our home. We don't have shalom because we're not really trusting in the work of God. Jesus completes the work of God. And when you learn to put your full trust in the finished work of Jesus, you will experience real shalom, real peace. I think that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Look at this. He writes, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, all the way, your whole self. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. We'll talk about the connection between peace and righteousness in a little bit. Blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we've got this really human tendency to pick and choose which sins are kind of bad and which are really bad, don't we? And every one of you in here has done this. You know, we minimize our own little hang-ups, but that guy's sins are bad. Someone once told me, you know, it's just like a bank account in heaven, you know. I try to make more deposits than withdrawals, and I figure I'm in good shape. (laughs) I was like those ladies on the insurance commercial on TV. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. It doesn't work like that, man. The first time you made a withdrawal, when you sinned, your account was emptied and it was closed forever. The only way you're going to have peace is to open a new account In Jesus' name. If you're a believer, your ledger full of sin was closed the day you decided to follow Jesus. It was was wiped clean the day you responded to salvation's offer and were baptized and received the Spirit of God in you. you. You are now wealthy, but your account has Jesus' name on it. It'll never run out, ever. You just get to live off the interest but it's his account, not yours. And if you want wholeness, if you want shalom, you got to learn to live off the interest of his account and not try to depend on your own righteousness. The Bible calls that grace. And when you do that, you'll have shalom. You'll have peace in your soul. It's yours for the having when you trust in the finished work of Jesus. But there's more here for us. It's not just trust. That's part of it. But we also need to honor the name of God. The second vital thing you have to do to experience real shalom is to honor the name of God. Once the work of God is alive in us, then we have to honor his name. And you see this in verse 12 and 13. Look at this again with me. He says, Lord, you establish peace, shalom for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. In verse 12 and 13, we see this covenant name of God, the Lord, Yahweh, repeated twice. In the, in the original text, it's at the beginning of each sentence for emphasis. And there's this startling admission. Everything we did, everything that might, you know, we could list as our accomplishments are really yours, Lord. In fact, this idea that this peace that they have is the result of them honoring the the name of God. He talks about other lords ruling over them, these other political entities, and he says, we're not going to honor them, we're just going to honor you, Lord. And because of that, they get to experience the Lord's shalom, even in a culture full of strife and struggle and injustice and hardship and war and death. They have peace in their heart (laughs) when the politics don't go their way. Anybody in here need to hear that today? See, when we start talking about honoring God's name, that immediately takes us back to the third commandment, right? You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, for most of my life, I thought that meant, don't you dare say, oh, my God, that's bad. It includes that. Some would go even further. I'm just, I'm warning you, if you're extra sensitive to this, this is going to bug you a little bit. I'm going to say this from the pulpit. Others have taught that that commandment means, don't you dare say, God damn it. Don't you dare say, Jesus Christ, when you smack your thumb with a hammer. And yes, it includes those things, but the third commandment is way bigger than that. It includes that, but it's way bigger than that. Listen, if you're gonna experience real shalom, you need to know that the third commandment is way bigger than just not swearing when you smack your thumb with a hammer. Not taking the Lord's name in vain is about wearing God's name in a way that honors Him. As a Christian, you wear God's name. As a Jesusite, you walk around with the name of God on you. You've been adopted into his family. When Jesus came into your life and made you whole through the power of the gospel, he gave you his shalom. He put his name on you. Honor the name of God. Don't take it in vain. Don't, listen, listen, please, 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 do everybody, do the whole church a favor. If you don't want to live like Jesus, quit calling yourself a Christian. if you want to have peace, you learn to honor the name of the Lord God in your life. And you'll have shalom in you. And it'll ripple out into your home. See, this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. Look at this. He says, do you not know, implied answer, yes you should, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor... Um, uh, men who have sex with men, nor the thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I love this. Look at this. And that's what some of you, what? Were. Past tense. And what that means is that the church at Corinth, there were former adulterers, former swindlers, and yes, even former homosexuals got into it with a friend of mine online about that. He said, well, Paul was wrong. Were you there? You've aged remarkably well. (laughs) He knew these people. He planted that church. How did that happen? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You want to have peace. Then take the Lord's name, not in vain, but in truth. Trust in it, depend on it, live like Jesus. See, one of the most important words in this passage is the word translated righteous or righteousness. It's applied to God, it's applied to people who honor the Lord. And there's this incredibly frequent connection in the Old Testament between the ideas of peace and the ideas of righteousness. They just go together like peanut butter and jelly. It's just It's the way that goes in the Bible. When you have true biblical shalom in your life, then real righteousness can flourish. And that honors the name of the Lord God. And the more you honor God, the more shalom you'll have. It's this beautiful feedback loop, and it makes a real difference in people's lives. And this is based on research. From 2005 to 2007, the Barna Research Group did a nationwide telephone survey of over a thousand people to see if having an active faith really made a difference in people's lives. So they compared active faith people, which in the survey, they, they defined as that you've been to church, read the Bible, and prayed all within the last seven days. And it's not just one of the three, it's all of the three. That you've been to church, read the Bible, and prayed all three with some, at some point in the last seven days. That's how they define active faith. And they did a comparison between active faith people and like agnostics or atheists, like no faith people. That's how it was phrased in the survey, was no faith. Okay, so they, faith, it's sinus, but whatever. Um, so they, they did this study, and Barna found that these active faith believers were more positive, more generous, and more engaged in their community than anybody else. Here's the data. Look at this. So they tracked being active in their communities. Active faith, 68%. No faith, 41%. Personally helping homeless or poor people. Active faith, 61%. No faith, 41%. Yearly donations to charitable causes. Active faith, 1,500 bucks. No faith, which means the active faith people are still not tithing, just saying, okay? Here's the next one. Focus on living a comfortable, balanced life. Active faith, 4%. The emphasis on comfort, like I'm gonna just make myself happy. No faith, 12%. Focus on accumulating wealth. Active faith, 2%. No faith, 10%. And here's the one that caught my eye. Feeling of being at peace. Active faith, 90%. No faith, 67 Listen, I get it. There's a halo effect that happens when someone calls you to take a survey, right, on the phone. Like, we always represent ourselves better than we really are. But that cuts both ways. Active faith, no faith, doesn't matter. We're all, everybody does that. But I think there's still a lesson for us here. The people who honor the name of God have objectively, according to the data, more peace in their lives. They have more peace with themselves. You want to have peace in your home? It starts with you. So if you feel like you don't have peace or you desperately want more of it, my question for you today is this. Have you trusted the the work that Jesus did for you on the cross? When he died on the cross in your place for your sins, are you living a life that honors his name? Did you hear me today? Here's the big idea again one more time. Peace in the home starts by having peace with yourself, which only comes through the work of Jesus in you and a life lived for him. Now, Listen, I'll be the first to admit those two things are not exhaustive, okay? More could be said because each person's wholeness recipe is unique to them. But if you do these things, if you trust in the work of God and honor the name of God, you will notice a definite increase in the amount of peace that you have with yourself. I can make you that promise today. Trust that Jesus will take away your brokenness, that he's enough when you're tempted or you feel some lack in your life. And as he makes you whole, you learn to honor his name by living like him. I love the saying, there's no pillow so soft as a clean conscience. How many of you have lain awake at night beating yourself up mentally for something stupid you said to that one girl in junior high? <laughs> That's not shalom. It's not peace. I want to have peace. I want to lay my head down on the pillow at night and go, today... Today I trusted in the work of God and today I honored the name of God. Last Sunday, Nick challenged us to be a church where it's okay to admit that you're not okay. And he was right. If we're gonna be a church where the whole community can become whole in Christ, we've gotta learn to love people who are not okay. There's probably some in this room right now. So we're gonna do something a little bit different today. Um, I'm gonna ask everybody in here to just close your eyes. I'm going to do it with you. Just close your eyes, please. Go go along with this for a minute. I want you to close your eyes. If I ask each of you in here to describe your life in one word, there are some of you in here who could not and would not use the word shalom. You're not okay. I'm going to ask you to be bold. Everybody's eyes are shut, but if you came in today... And you're not okay. I want you to stand up. My eyes are shut. Everybody's around you's eyes are shut. But if you're not okay, stand up. See, I'm standing too. You know, James says to pray for each other so that you might be healed, made whole. And this is a time for you to respond. Respond. I'm going to ask everybody else to join you. Everyone stand up. Keep your eyes shut. Stand up. In just a second, we're all going to open our eyes and we're going to sing together. If you stood up while your eyes were shut, if you're part of that first group, I'm going to ask you to be bold and take the next step. James says, pray for each other so that you can be healed. We want to pray for you. If you came today and you're not okay, you don't have shalom, we'll have people down here ready to receive you. Maybe you've got another need. Maybe you're ready to be baptized. Maybe you want to place your membership here. I know we've got one here that wants to do that today. Maybe you just need to have a conversation with someone. You can go to the next step room under the yellow awning. But if you stood up earlier and you're not okay and you want someone to pray with you and pray for you about what's going on, we're ready to do that today. We're going to sing together and you respond as God leads you. Let's sing.